If you would, turn with me one final time in our study of Genesis to Genesis chapter 1. Together we have been moving verse by verse through this chapter, Genesis 1. We've been, over the last few weeks, looking at verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 3. Genesis 1, 26 through chapter 2, verse 3. We won't stand and read them because we just read a good portion of them. And we did read the portion from which I will be preaching this morning. We're going to focus on the words, be fruitful and multiply. And I want to ask you this question. If you could become a scientist in any field here this morning... What field of science would you most desire to go into? What kind of scientist would you choose to be? Would you like to be an astronomer? One who studies the galaxies and the stars of our universe? Would you like to be a biologist? One who studies plants or or animals like a zoologist? Would you like to be um, a physicist? or a chemist, or something else. Well, over the last several weeks, you and I have been acting as scientists in a particular field. We have been engaging in the field of science known as anthropology, the study of man, the study of the origins of man, where man came from, and his early history. Theology is the study of God. Anthropology is the study of man. And that's what we have been doing as we have been looking at these opening verses of the Bible. Because you see, there is no artifact on this earth that anyone could dig up that will tell us more about who we are, where we came from, and why than these nine verses in Genesis 1.26 through chapter 2, verse 3. You have before you the Spirit-inspired Word of God, but you also have before you, in those nine verses, the greatest artifact on planet Earth to tell us who we are and why we exist. Now, most modern anthropologists do not accept the Bible as God's Word, and so they do not include these verses in their data Most today would deny the truths that we have been learning. But for us as Christians, many of the answers that modern, unbelieving anthropologists give their lives to discover, we see right here in these verses, and they have been known by Christians for centuries. I hope you've come to see over the last seven weeks last several weeks, how profound these verses are and how profoundly important these verses are. This is our seventh and last message on this. And we do believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God. We do believe that all of the Bible is profitable for teaching. But some passages of the Bible are more rich. Some passages of the Bible are more dense. They contain so much more treasure than perhaps other passages of the Bible. This, I would suggest to you, is one of those very rich passages 
And so I want to suggest to you that though we are going to move on, I don't want you to completely move on. But I hope you will turn again and again to these verses when you have questions about who you are and what your purpose in life is and why God made you. We have scratched the surface of a mound of truth that plummets down for miles. And the more you dig, the more you go to other scriptures to shed light on these verses, the more you will discover. And so I hope that you will come back to these verses again and again. What is man? We've seen that man is a creature made by God for his glory. It's you. It's who you are. We've seen that man is the chief of God's creation. A moral, volitional, conscious being to whom God has communicated many of His own attributes. We are sons and daughters of God. Called to glorify Him by doing in miniature what He does each and every day. Use our characteristics and abilities to exercise dominion and bring forth beauty and order in the world. We've seen that we were created to work. Male and female, we have been called to give ourselves to the use of our God-given talents and abilities for God's glory. We've seen that we've been called to rest and to worship, that we are to cease from our labors one day a week and to devote that day to God, finding refreshment for our souls. We've seen, or we will see, that man has been called to multiply, that man and woman together in the institution of marriage are called to reproduce and fill the earth until the four corners of the globe are filled with those singing the praises of our awesome God. That was the original intention. This is who man is. And this is what we're about. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The Jews in Jesus' day had taken the first five books of the Bible, the books of law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they had put together a list of all the commandments that were contained there. 613 commandments that they found in the first five books of the Bible. And of those 613 commandments, commandment number one was this one. Be fruitful. And multiply. It is the first commandment in the Bible given to man. It's a commandment that is accompanied by a blessing. Do you see that in verse 28? And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And we've already seen in our study that God's blessing is His gift of fruitfulness. Men and women were called to reproduce, but it was God who must give the life. Indeed, if anyone is fruitful in any way, physically, materially, spiritually, it ultimately is because of God. In verse 22, we read this in our responsive reading a while ago. Verse 22, God commanded the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea to be fruitful and multiply. But first, He had to give them His blessing. He had to give them fruitfulness. When Adam and Eve first came together in the sexual union, even this act was an act of faith, depending upon God knowing that He and He alone could cause them to multiply. He had commanded them to do something that only He could do. 
Their role was to trust and to obey. Their role was to receive each other as husband and wife, as a gift from God to one another. They were to enjoy one another. And God blessed them and they multiplied. So that when Eve has her first child, Cain, she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She understood that this child was not something that she and Adam had produced ultimately, but that it was God's doing. It was God's gift of fruitfulness that had caused them to multiply. It was God's work that she had this newborn life in her hands. Church, we can affirm that all life comes from God. Amen? All life begins in God. All life exists through God. All life brings glory to God. All physical life comes from God. And all spiritual life comes from God. And as I'm going to try and explain here in a few minutes, the command to be fruitful and multiply to Adam and Eve was a foreshadowing of Christ's command to us as a church to go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. This is a foreshadowing of the Great Commission. You and I have been called to be fruitful and to multiply with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I are called to be involved in expanding the Kingdom of God. And yet, just like Adam and Eve, we know that this is a command which we cannot fulfill without God's blessing. God must give the life. We can do the joyful work of preaching the gospel, writing down the gospel in booklets and handing them out. We can do the work of Bible translating. We can do the work of having co-workers in our homes and talking to them. But God must use it to bring life. Yesterday, we handed out close to 300 gospel booklets. I believe those booklets explain the gospel well. So now, church, our work is not done. Now we must pray. Now we pray that God will take what we did and that He will use it to do what only He can do. That we, as Christians and as a church, will be fruitful and multiply by Him giving the blessings. Like Adam and Eve, we need to trust and we need to obey and then we call on Him to give the fruitfulness. Dear friends, if we have a hundred outreaches this year, but those outreaches are not bathed in prayer, calling on God to give life, we do it all in vain. Did you hear that? It's in vain if it's not accompanied by a pleading with God to bless. Can you imagine what it would have been like to bear children before the fall of man, before the curse. Now, Adam and Eve did not have children before the curse, so this is pure speculation. But can you imagine, had sin never entered the world, what it would have been like to bear children in a perfect world? No pain in childbirth. No heartache in parenting. Children would have had a holy instinct from the time they were infants, to honor and obey their parents, to give themselves fully in being trained to work throughout their lives for the glory of God and to find their satisfaction in Him. 
as humanity filled the earth, as Adam and Eve had children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and none of them were dying because there was no fall, had this happened, the earth would have been filled with worshipers of God. The earth would have been completely filled as as a world of those who loved God and adored God and spent their lives seven days a week for the glory of God. This was the original plan. This was the, what, what was the first paradise was going to be. And yet, just as our God gives life, we know that sin brings death. The wages of sin is death. And so into this glorious plan of a world filled with worshipers came sin and the fall and its consequence, death. Death was a righteous curse. God had warned us that if we sinned in the garden, death would be the result. And because we sinned, procreation, being fruitful and multiply, has been dramatically affected. Look at Genesis 3, verse 16. Look at Genesis 3, verse 16, where God pronounces the curse to Eve He says, quote, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Eve received this curse as a representative of all mothers everywhere. For now, after the fall, though children are still produced, it is now in the context of great pain felt by mothers and indeed by fathers, but particularly by, fa- by mothers in many different ways. Today, because of the fall, there is pain in, in seeking to conceive a child. Infertility, barrenness prevent many women from having children at all. And others do so only after years of trying and suffering a great deal of emotional and spiritual and even relational agony. In Genesis, after the fall, we meet many women who dealt with this result of the curse. Indeed, we meet many who have broken hearts and earnest prayers and some who do downright dishonest deeds in their desire to have a child. Then there's the pain associated with bringing a child to full term. In our fallen world, miscarriages happen. An experience that I know many women in here know. Because of the fall, there is pain and ailments that accompany a pregnancy. Morning sickness and others that are more severe and cause mothers to be put on bed rest for weeks or months sometimes. There's the pain associated with delivering a child. We live in a time and place in which many mothers can escape some of the pain of delivering a child because of the medical drugs that we have available. This isn't the case in other places of our world, and it certainly has not been the case through most of history. There is pain in childbirth. There are occasionally those terrible circumstances in which a child is born malformed in some way so that the child does not live long after birth. 
And in our age of modern medicine, we don't need to forget the millions of mothers throughout history who died in giving birth. Millions upon millions. All because of sin. All because of death entering our world. If all that was not enough, even after a child is born, there is often so much more heartache and pain to come. The promise, in pain you shall bring forth children, has been fulfilled a million times in the lives of mothers and of fathers, and it continues to be fulfilled each and every day. The pain of children who won't obey. The pain of children who live in ungodliness. The pain of children who grow up to cause a kind of heartache in their parents that perhaps those parents didn't know was possible before. All of this should remind us just how terrible sin is. How sin always brings disruption and disorder into the world. Do not treat sin lightly. Let its consequences that you and I experience every day remind us how terrible it is to sin against an almighty God. I haven't even touched on the worst part of the curse yet. The children of Adam and Eve, like Adam and Eve themselves, were originally intended to live forever. But because of sin, our bodies die. Our children will die. There was a time when children born would have lived forever. Physically, their bodies lived forever. That time is no more. And most tragic of all, because of the fall, our children are born spiritually dead. Because of the fall, our children are born stillborn, spiritually speaking. Dead to God. God's purpose was that through Adam and Eve multiplying, the world would have been filled with worshipers. Because of the fall... We've multiplied! And the world is not filled with worshipers, but filled with those who despise God, filled with those who hate God, filled with those who trample His commandments and live for lesser things. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is God's indictment of humanity. What does this mean for God's plan? God's plan was to fill the earth with worshipers. Now because of the fall, will there ever be a day in which there's a good creation ruled by godly human beings, bearing perfectly God's image with His praises ringing from their lips forever? Has God's plan been lost? Has sin ruined everything? That would be the case, except for who? Jesus. 
Have we not seen, church, week after week after week, how Jesus is the answer to every predicament created by the fall? We've seen that man was created in God's image. Because of our sin, that image is distorted. Can it ever be restored? Only through Jesus Christ. Man was created to exercise dominion over the earth to use their talents and abilities for God's glory. But because of sin, we now use our abilities to dishonor God. Can we ever be fixed? Can we ever be saved? Only through Jesus Christ. We've seen that man was created to work, male and female, working, striving for excellence to honor God in all our vocations and callings. But we've lost that through the fall. We now have laziness. We now have abuse. We now have sloppiness in our work. Can we ever be again what God created us to be in the beginning? Only through Jesus Christ. We were created to worship God, to set one day a week aside for worship and for rest, the Sabbath. But man has forsaken the Sabbath. Man no longer has a heart that wants to drink from the living waters of God. Rather, we go to these broken wells and try and take what we can out of there. Can we ever be fixed only through Jesus Christ? That's what we've been discovering week after week after week in these verses. Sin is the problem. Jesus is the answer. And I don't know what you're dealing with this morning, and I don't know what sin is is holding on to you and holding you down from obeying God, but I do know this. Jesus is the answer. Go to Him. Plead for forgiveness and help. His grace is sufficient for whatever you may be going through this morning. Oh, you take that, church. Trust that. How does Jesus solve this problem? The problem of God's plan of a world of worshipers now lost. How does Jesus set it right? Well, Jesus is the beginning of of a new creation. Now Jesus is not new. He's existed forever. And Jesus is not creation. He, is, he has always existed. He is God. Jesus is the Creator Himself. Yet, Jesus took on human flesh. The Creator became a part of the creation. When Jesus died on the cross and went into that tomb, He did so as a part of this creation. As a part of us. When Jesus Christ arose from that tomb, He rose with a new body, the beginning of a new humanity, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus For 33 years was a part of our old creation, but now Jesus is the first of a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth that will be created. Jesus is bringing this old creation to an end. And soon, though neither you nor I know the day, He will come. And He will make a new creation on which God's good purpose of a good creation filled with holy worshipers will be fulfilled. Already, 
Christ is claiming for Himself those men and those women who will have that privilege of being worshipers of God on the new earth. And if you're a Christian, you're one of them. Your body is still a part of this old creation. But if you've been saved, your soul has been transformed and traded in for a replacement. Your soul's a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christian, you are a new creation soul in an old creation body. But that's temporary. Because this old creation body, yeah, it's going to die if Jesus doesn't come back first. But just like Jesus' body, it's going to be raised and made a part of the new creation. So you see, Jesus is fulfilling God's original plan. When the day of judgment is past, the church of Jesus Christ will be placed on a new earth in which we will live in joyful worship forever. God came to Abraham and said that it would be through his seed that a Messiah would come and bless the nations. David was promised that from his seed, a king would come who would reign forever. This was the vision that God's people were taught to sing. Listen to, to this psalm, this prayer that God's people were singing in the Old Testament. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known in all the earth, Your saving power among all nations. Let all the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For You judge the peoples with equity. You guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. This was the heartbeat of the godly in Old Testament Israel. God, bring about a day when all the earth loves you. And Jesus is answering that prayer today. As the gospel is going out into the world, as God's people are being saved from every tongue, tribe, and nation, we are being prepared for a new earth where that psalm will be fulfilled. Jesus said, I will build my church. And He's doing it, men and women. May we have some part in it. What does this mean for us? Friends, the command to be fruitful and multiply is still a command to you and to me. It is no longer mainly about bearing children. Now you know me. You know that I believe that children are a blessing from the Lord. I believe that large families are particularly blessed families. I think the, the sentiment in our culture that sees children as an annoyance and as a hindrance, that's sickening to me. That's anti-godly. I affirm children are a blessing. And when God gives into our families a little one, we ought to be thankful and sing with praise. Amen? And yet, 
In our new covenant days, the command to be fruitful and multiply is no longer mainly about producing physical children. It's about producing spiritual children. The goal of the command is an earth filled with worshipers. And today, worshipers are not produced through procreation. Worshipers are produced through evangelism and through missions. I wonder, are you bearing spiritual children? Are you a spiritual parent? Paul called Titus my true child in a common faith. Paul called Timothy his beloved child. And these men were not sons of Paul physically. But he called these men his children because he had been instrumental in leading them to Christ. Friends, who are your spiritual children? Who has God used you to help produce as a worshiper? This is not optional. This is God's will for you. You are to live your life as a worshiper of God living seven days a week for Him. And a part of your worship should be an active effort on your part to see other worshipers come into the fold. We are to share the Gospel because we love our fellow human beings and we do not want to see them suffer in hell. We are to share the Gospel because it has brought to us such a world of blessing and freely we have received, so we want to freely give. But we mainly share the gospel out of a delight in the glory of God and a genuine passion to see others experience that same delight so that our fellow man is made happy and our God is more greatly glorified. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that includes leading others to do the same. What can I say here at the end that would cause us to get more motivated and more active in reaching others for Christ? Should I remind us of all the blessings we have as Christians? Don't you want others to have those same blessings? Should I remind us of how deserving our God is of the worship of billions who now forsake Him? Would a zeal and a passion to see our God receive the worship He is due move your heart? Should I point us to Christ? bearing God's wrath on the cross. And should I ask, don't you want to be a part of seeing that every soul for whom Christ died is reached so that not one droplet of blood is in vain? What can I say? Love for others. Love for God. Love for Christ. Will these not motivate us How many times this week did you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone? How many unbelievers were in your path that you could have invited into your home to begin forming a relationship which God could use to bring salvation? Who could have been with you at church this morning but is not? 
because you failed to ask. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.33 that he lived his life in order that others may be saved. There were advantages he could have had, rights he could have insisted on, but he joyfully denied himself and poured himself out to win others to Christ. Was Paul being foolish? Should Paul have spent his time pursuing personal pleasures? Did Paul waste his life by working to see the gospel known and loved by others? Did he waste his life on a less than noble task? Or are we the one wasting our lives? Men and women, boys and girls, all perishing around us while we sit and stare at our television screens. So many evenings that we could have had guests over getting to know them, talking to them about Christ that we spend instead watching American Idol. Paul thought it better to be put in prison, beaten, and even stoned if he had the opportunity to share the gospel. It was worth it to him. He and the other apostles and a line of courageous Christians throughout history have been willing to die in order to share the gospel. Yet here we are in a country with great freedoms, freedoms that these men never knew. We have resources that these men never had. We have opportunities like these men could have never imagined, and yet we stay silent. Are we wasting our lives? You know, I I don't think it's that we don't care about the lost. I think it's that we're just so darn distracted. We haven't learned our priorities. We still have the idols of the world in our hearts so that we haven't learned how to give our job and our hobbies and all else that we do into this mission of reaching the world. Don't waste your job. Don't waste your hobby. Don't waste that family reunion that's coming up or that wedding that you need to go to or that ball game that you have tickets for. All of these, your entire life ought to be lived with this seasoning of evangelism so that you speak to your unbelieving cousin at the family reunion. You invite them to take one of the basketball tickets and you watch the game together. And all through it, while you're enjoying the game, while you're having this time with this family member, you're looking for opportunities. How can I point him to Christ? Seize your relationships at work. Seize your relationships with those around you every day. How can you point others to Jesus? What about that coworker that you, you see every day but you know are so little? Invite her and her family to your home. Be intentional about forming relationships. And not artificially. Folks, I think one thing we in America have failed to do, we have lost what it means to love someone. We think loving someone means just saying that we love them. Loving someone means taking a genuine interest in their lives. Do you love your coworkers? Are you taking a genuine interest in them and their problems and their issues and are you trying to bring them into this relationship so you can point them to the answer? This ought to be every day for us. This ought to be becoming natural for us. 
Christ church will be built. The full number of God's people will be gathered in with or without us. But the command to be fruitful and multiply is accompanied by a blessing. We rob ourselves. We hurt our spiritual growth. We lessen our joy in God. And we miss out on a world of meaningful living when we fail to participate in evangelism and missions. I really am done with this. How many years have you been saved? How many years have you belonged to Christ? In all those years, how many times have you shared the gospel with someone else? Can you count them on one hand? The greatest gift you've ever received and you've shared it four times? Five? One? We need to repent of our laziness. We need to repent. I'm preaching to myself as well. We need to repent of being distracted. We need to repent of caring too little about our neighbors. We need to repent of not using all that God has given us for the reaching of souls. We need to grieve over this sin. And we need to make real changes in the way we are living. The culture of Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church needs to change. It's already changing, I think, in a good way. But it needs to continue. We don't need to be distracted and worried over little things that matter less. This needs to be a priority. This needs to be important to us and our life as a church. Let us not neglect this central calling on our lives to know God and to make Him known. Will you be a part of the change? Will you be one who leads by example, by a lifestyle of relational evangelism? Or will you stay as you are, comfortable in your sin and distracted by the pleasures of the world? Will you, will I, waste my life? Or will I seek to be fruitful and multiply? Let's pray.